John chapter 4, and I'd like us to look, um, we're going to just read some scripture this morning, look at this together. Last night when we were praying, Billy was leading us in prayer, um, I just had this, I was just so ministered to by God and by just the presence of the Holy Spirit in the room and presence of God's people and just see what God's doing in people's lives. And I was just thinking, um, as we were praying, this phrase came to my mind in John 4. Um, later on in the chapter, the woman he meets at the well. How many know this story, the woman at the well? Okay, John 4. It's okay if you don't. I, I, I think I know it, but I read it this morning and last night. I was like, I don't know this. <laughs> and reading this, thinking about what the woman said about, about Jesus Christ. And she runs to her village and says, come meet the man. And, you know, when we think of all of the complexities of our life, you know how you have people said, you know, what, you know, on Facebook, like, what's your relationship status? You know, it's complicated. And this was a very complicated woman in John chapter 4. But we see the gospel shine through Christ to this woman. And um, we were with a family this week, just visiting them. And we got talking about mental illness a little bit. And, um, you know, there are conditions that we have that there are no simple answers for. And somebody may say, well, wait a minute. I mean, doesn't the Bible give us absolute simple answers? And it does. It does. But what is not so simple is the process. And there are... There are right-hand turns. There's, you know, there's, there's angles. There, there's uh, mountains. There's crooked paths. There's, there's Abraham that's going down into Egypt for thirteen, you know, for this period of time, period of time, not talking to God. And our relationship, the relationship that God has um, with us, sometimes can just take some really interesting turns. And when we look at the condition of man, when we could look at the condition of people. And we can very easily say, this is really complicated, and I don't know really if I'm, you know, if I'm in for this. Maybe in your marriage, you're like, maybe you're discouraged, I don't know. Maybe with your kids. This past week was a hard week for me and my son because he, got, he, he went to a new class, and he's not really jiving in the new classroom. He went from four to 22 kids, and it's just, you know, the teacher's not jiving. And he's like a kid that really, that really connects with people. And he's not really a. It just wasn't jiving at first. And I and as I as we were going through this together, it's interesting how God will cause circumstances in your life to bring up old wounds that have never been healed yet. And I remember like picking my son up from school and listening to the teacher say the same words that my teacher said to my dad in my troublesome times as a kid growing up, and it blindsided me. I was like blind. I went home. And I was like a wreck. I don't. I don't know what was going on. I was like emotionally a wreck. I was just all these weird feelings and anger and just like my wife's like, "Are you okay? Like, what's going on with you?" And I said, "Honey, I don't. I'm just. I'm wrecked. I'm. I'm a, I don't know. I don't. This whole thing with Caleb is just bringing back all these memories of like being a kid that I was dyslexic. I was. I had ADHD. I had." Everything in the book, I was development issues and all this crazy stuff that you read. Like, as a parent, you're reading and you're like, 
oh no, that's my kid, right? I don't know if you've been there or not. Maybe you haven't. But I was hearing the teacher, you know, tell about what was going on, and I thought, wow, this is this is not great. And I and it took me two days to recover. And I'm just sharing that with you because we are very interesting people. There's a lot of stuff inside of us that comes out that you don't even know is there, and it's coming out. And 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 there's only one way to deal with that. There's no there's no flat answers. There's no like, hey, just do this. Uh, run this mechanism in your life, and then you're going to be good. You know, the Catholic Church will say, hey, pray these prayers, you know, uh, 30 Hail Marys, the prayer beads, and go see the, go see the priest once a week. And there's really no pat answers, and we see this here with the woman at the well. There's really no pat answers in the way God deals with us. Otherwise, it would be very mechanical, and it would not be the gift of grace. It would not be a, a growth. And so there's three things I just want to mention this morning that, number one, the grace of God, and these may sound familiar to you, or maybe, um, maybe this is something we've heard before. But I want us—I want the Holy Spirit to refresh us in this: that the grace of God is for anyone, is for everyone, because it's a gift. It's a gift for all. Number two, I want to just talk about how the change in your life is gradual. The grace of God is gradual; it works, and it's gradual, and it's not instantaneous. So don't get impatient with yourself. And number three. Grace doesn't demand change in you. It's not demanding you to change, right? Maybe churches are going to do that. They're going to say, hey, you've got to change. You've got to get your act together. You've got to knock this off. Or we just can't have you come anymore. I mean, I heard a story about that last night, that somebody was asked to leave a church because they couldn't get their stuff together. And I've heard that before, and that's so heartbreaking to hear that. Grace doesn't demand a change, but it is powerful, and it causes change in our life. I just want to say those three things. So let's look at John 4 together. And I just want to do a little reading with you. John chapter 4. And I'm going to start in verse 4. And just listen to this. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now Jesus, when he, I'm going to start with verse 1. When he, had heard, when he had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, Jesus leaves Judea and departed again for Galilee. Jesus is not in some baptism competition with John the Baptist. He's okay. He can walk. He's just like, hey, I'm going to go on a mission trip. And then sometimes, you know, I think when things get really complicated, like in church or churchianity or whatever's going on, it's always fun to take a mission trip. And for me, that's my, that's my, that's my, um, what do you call it? My escape. You know, I need to take a mission trip every, every few months. Um, and it's just, you know, so he goes on a mission trip to Galilee. But it says in verse 4, and I love these words, he left Judea, goes to Galilee. Galilee is up there where he's going to, you know, where he is meeting his disciples. But between Jerusalem and Galilee, there's this area of town or this area of the country called Samaria. Now, Samaria, if you know historically, Samaria is a bad place for the Jewish mind because these are not real Jews. They're half Jews. They're hybrids. Because about 700 B.C., the Assyrians came in. They conquered that part of Israel, Samaria. And they started deporting Jews out of Samaria. Sounds like communism, doesn't it? They begin to deport Jews out, and they begin to bring in. They begin. The Assyrians begin to bring in these uh, Assyrians and these Canaanites and these these heathen of the land, and they begin to intermarry with the Jews. And so what they had was is a race of Jews that were mixed, and it was really kind of like not really very interracial. And the Jew would look at Samaria as like an unclean place. Samaria was, Samaria, there was a lot of other bad stuff that happened there too. About 100, about 100 BC, 
the Sumerians felt like they were social, moral, religious outcasts from the Jewish race. And so they couldn't go to Jerusalem to worship. So what they did was, is that they created their own temple on their own mountain right there in Gerizim. And they said, this is where we're going to worship as, as Samaritans. And then Jesus says, this is what he says in verse 4. And listen to the words when he says this. You can hear the heart of John writing as he, hear, as he writes this. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. He had to. I like how it is in King James. He must needs to go to Samaria. I let, don't you hear in that? The, the passion, the urgency, the push, the spiritual push in Jesus that he's got to go to Samaria. I've got to go there. There's something for me to do there. I mean, who's going to talk like that? I mean, we live in a world that is racially, morally, socially, and even genderly separate. There's separations. There are these, there's these divisions. And Jesus says, I'm going to go there. And this is the shortest route to Galilee is to go through Samaria. And it's about 24 miles. It's a long walk. And he, most Jews, when they go to Galilee, they would not even go to Samaria because it was unclean. They didn't want to dirty their feet with the dust from, from Samaria. Does that, sound, does that sound racist? Does that sound like that sound like separatist? Does that sound like that is exactly? And so Jesus goes to Samaria, and he came to a, a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour is noon. Sixth hour, they had a different way of counting hours in, in Israel at the time, in, ancient, in, in the ancient times. And so six o'clock was noon. So Jesus is at the hottest point of the day. He's sitting at a well, probably in the sun, and he's very thirsty. And when we read here what happens next, we're reading that... Um, Jesus here, and this is the first point I want to make. Jesus is the incarnation. He is the embodiment of the grace of God. Every step he took, every word he said, every healing that he did, he is, he is, he is um, living out the finished work gospel. By the way, the gospel, and we say this a lot, but I just want us to understand it. I think we do. But the gospel is not this. People look at the gospel as like, okay, this is the simplest doctrine in the Bible it's the, it's the minimalistic gospel that all I have to do is believe on Christ and I'm saved. No, the gospel is something that is in our life on a daily basis that is changing us every day in every detail of our life, all the way down to our finances, down to our family, and the way we look at the neighborhood that we live in. And so Jesus here is appearing. He is the grace of God appearing to all. And he's making a statement here. I'm going to go to Samaria. I'm going to go to a part of town that Jews don't want to go to that it's uncomfortable for them to go to. And not just that it's dirty, but Samaritans didn't like Jews either. They thought, these people are stuck up, they're, they're proud, they're, just, they're arrogant, and we really don't want them in our town anyway. So we're going to have our own mountain, we're going to have our own temple. And so Jesus is there, and he has this divine appointment. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, verse 7, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now it's important to note here that when women would go to get water, they would do it in the morning for many reasons. Number one, it was not so hot. It was before, it was, it was, they would have enough water for the whole day and they would just go in the morning. And it was also a social event. All the women would get together at, at the well and they'd be getting water, they'd be talking. And it was just kind of like, you know, it was a real social time 
This woman comes in the middle of the day when she knows that no one's going to be there. She shows up for different reasons. Number one, she's there because um, she's a social and a moral outcast. She's a social and a moral outcast. She does not want to mix with the other women because she doesn't have a husband. And if you don't have a husband, I'm going to get, we're going to look at, we're going to see this in a minute. That means several things. So she's there getting water by herself. She's showing up, but she knows that no one's going to be there. And she goes there. She meets Jesus. Jesus says, give me a drink. What is Jesus asking her? Jesus starts the conversation. The process of change in this woman's life begins with a question. Can you give me a drink? And Jesus is not asking for water necessarily, but he's asking her for something that she cannot give him. I can give you some water, but I'm going to have to keep giving it to you because this water is is not endless. And so Jesus says, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here, and note here too, that they're in Samaria. So the disciples, who are Jews, they go to a Samaritan outdoor market. Now, if you've lived overseas or have traveled overseas, you know, when we lived in Ukraine, people were not going to like an HEB or a Kroger. They were going to an open-air market where meat was freshly slain that morning. I was, you know, we were, you know, we would, my wife would go. There's a part of my wife you guys don't even know about. <laughs> There's this awesome part about you guys have never seen. You just see her, you know, living in Texas. But she lived overseas, and she would go to the market. We'd go there almost every day, and they'd be freshly slain um, beef and, and, and veal and all of this stuff. And, you, and, you, and there's the head of the cow there and the head of the sheep. And the meat would still be warm because it was slain that morning. And so we'd be, she'd be picking up meat, and um, everybody's touching it with their hands. This raw meat on, the, on, on, a, on a slab of either cement or wood. And it was just really gross. I mean, it was just like yucky. It was just like unbelievable. And I, you know, maybe that's why God gave me that, you know, that woman as a wife because she, she grew up in that. And she knew exactly what was good meat and what was bad meat. And she just knew it. And so here they are. They're in this Samaritan market, and it's really dirty. And it's gross. And there's no hygiene going on there. It's not, there's no hygiene. There's no sanitary things going on. And everything was being done at the Samaritan market against the, the law of Moses and the, uh, the hygiene that he, pattern of hygiene that he mandated. And so the Samaritan woman said to him in verse 9, listen to this conversation, okay? This is a beautiful conversation. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And here that she brings up, she brings up one of four barriers in this conversation. There's four barriers that Jesus has, or this woman has with Jesus. And the first barrier is a gender barrier. How is it that you being a Jew, and it's a second barrier, is a racial barrier. How is it that you being Jewish and a male talking to a woman that's from Samaria? And it wasn't, it wasn't accepted in this culture, in ancient culture. And you can see this still in the Middle East. It wasn't kosher. kosher. It wasn't good for a guy by himself to be talking to a woman that he did not know by herself. This was not accepted, and this was, a, this was, this was perceived as a solicitation for a, from, from a woman of some kind. It just The whole thing looked bad. He sends his disciples away. He's alone with a woman. This, everything is wrong with this picture. I mean, it just, this is something that is not done in the Jewish culture. And Jesus reaches right through every barrier, right through the racial barrier, right through the gender barrier, through the social barrier, her being a Samaritan, 
and being an outcast and to the moral, moral barrier that engage, and engages her with a conversation where he has a point he wants to make and that he is her personal savior. And here she says, what are you doing? How is it that you do? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, Jesus says, like he doesn't even answer her question. He, he zooms out, you know, he zooms out and there's a bigger picture here. And he said, let's not talk about your racial or, or the gender barrier here. Let's talk, let's zoom out and look at the bigger picture. I'm asking you for water and you can't give me water. And if you understood who I am and what I have, I want to give to you this grace, this gift of grace, then, then um, uh, I would have given you living water. And the woman said to him in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Let's, let's look at this for a second. You don't, have, you don't have anything to draw the water from. You know, when there's barriers in society, okay, when there's barriers economically, racial, gender barriers, when there's barriers in um, morality or economically, barriers always, always are accompanied with ladders because people want to get over those barriers. People don't want to be behind a barrier. They don't want to be behind a wall. And they're going to find a way, a way to get through that wall. And so they start building ladders. Every ladder that we build to get over these barriers that we find ourselves stuck in, like the woman in the well, by the well, she's, an, she's a woman that's stuck behind a moral barrel. She, she's stuck behind an ethnic barrier. She's stuck behind a social barrier that none of the women want to, in the town want to talk to her. She's stuck between a, behind a family barrier. What happens? They start building ladders to get over it. And these ladders are ladders of effort, of, of working hard to earn something, to get a better status socially, to get a better stash, status in the world of, of, of gender conflict, to get a better status in every one of these areas where, where, where the barriers are, are, are found. I don't know if you, if you are here today and you are, you, are, you are viewing a barrier in your life. Maybe it's an unfair barrier. Maybe you've been... I don't know what it is, but the barriers can exist in every person's heart. And Jesus, as she says, she says, hey, look, you're, you're thirsty. You're on the other side of, you're not in a privileged position to give me anything. There's no ladder there that you've climbed. There's no place here of achievement that you can say, hey, I did this so I can give you water. She says, you don't even have a bucket to pull the water out of. You ever been in that kind of a situation where you're in a place of, you're in a place, voluntarily in a place, and you don't have even the bucket to, to feed yourself, to get water with. You're not in a privileged position because you're not able to even climb the ladder. There are some people that can climb the ladders. We see them all the time. They're successful people. They've climbed the ladder of success. They get to this place, and then they can dictate to everybody, and then people that are not that high in the ladder, and even in the world of, of the church, you look at these people on the ladders, and they demand the sense of privilege. Does that make sense? Like, okay, so-and-so is driving this kind of a car. So, they, so that's a demand that I need to, like, to, to, uh, to recognize their privilege because they've climbed this ladder. There is this demand. It's like a debt. You following me? Is this making sense? Could be car, could be house, could be whatever. Could be, it could be whatever. And so she says to Jesus, she goes, she goes, this little ladder I've climbed, I've got water here. I can do this, but you have nothing. And Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't mind that. He was okay 
Because what Jesus had was living water, and she didn't get it. And she, she says, you don't even have a, a well to draw. You, don't have, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? So here she is. She's all over the place. And whenever there's this kind of a conflict going on, when someone like herself, or when you're sharing the gospel with someone, and they immediately bring up race, or they bring up politics, or they bring up um, economic status, and that happens. Sometimes people will look at you and say, hey, well, you're from this cut in society, and I'm this cut in society. And, and, like, and, they, and they bring awareness to it. And she said, you know, um, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said in verse 13 to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What he's saying to this woman is, is yeah, you've climbed the ladder, you have something, but you're also behind a barrier. You're, you're outcast. You are, you are rejected. And what the little that, that you have is not enough to give to me. I have something that you don't have, and I want to give it to you as an eternal gift of eternal gift of grace. And it's called living water that will spring up inside of you. Because if you keep going to this well, you're going to be thirsty again. This is this is how it works in the world. And this is how it can happen in religious Christianity. Okay? Religious Christianity says, look, hey, you're saved by grace. Praise the Lord. You're here. Hey, now here's a ladder. I need you to climb this ladder. Because you're behind a bear. You've got issues going on. And I need you to really work on yourself. And I need you to get into this program. And I need you to work hard. Because you know something secretly? You're in the church, but you're behind this barrier. And you're kind of like not us yet. Because we've had to climb that ladder. We've had to get to this place. And we're good. But you're almost there. But when, when you get there, hey, good, good job trying. When you get there, hey, you're going to be part of the accepted elite. Have you been there? Have you seen that? I've seen it. It's not great. And you walk in, you walk out, and you feel like you feel dirty. <laughs> you feel like you don't, ma- you, don't, you don't make the cut. You feel like you're not there yet. And this is what the devil wants to try to do. And this is what, this is what a Christianity, this is a religion that doesn't understand the gospel. This is the way it functions. It's giving people ladders. Here's a ladder. You can climb this ladder. I'm going to give you a program and once you get there, you can, you're good. It's kind of like we were talking, um, I think we were talking with Billy yesterday, just how there are some sins, there are some sins that we look at that are much more badder than other sins, right? We look at it like, hey, that's really bad, you know? Like someone can come in for counseling and they're struggling with adultery or porn or something else. And we're like, hey, come on in, we'll help you out. But if you're gay, if you're a homosexual, if you are a lesbian, or if you have ex- whatever sin that is, man, that's like that's way up there, and we really got to have you like not be here, you know, because we don't want you to contaminate us as a church. And you know something that is not the heart of Christ. And we were saying yesterday, Billy was saying to me, what we got to do is we got to take all of these sins that we think that are lesser, and we need to lift them up to that big sin that we think is the biggest, most awkward sin. And the thing is, is that, like, when I was pastoring in Philadelphia, this was a really big issue there, homosexuality. 
And we had people coming to our church. Um, in one case, we had two women that had kids and they were lesbians and they were in our church and they were there for a while. And one of them said to me, she, she said to me, she said, um, and she didn't explain to me why she said this, but she said, we are looking for the love of God. And when she said that, I understood what was going on. And I, it dawned on me that when somebody gets into this lifestyle, okay, they are looking for the love of God. They're looking for a love they can't find in the other gender. And they're looking for that. And, and, and you know something? When they were talking to me about that, I discovered that this person wants God desperately. They are desperately, they're going to the well every day trying to get that water to, 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 be, to, be, to feel filled and to, to satisfy that thirst that they have. And in this community, homosexual community, which we, you know, the church shuns them because we live in such a moral society and it just makes us feel awkward, you know? But Jesus here is walking right in He's in a very awkward position, very awkward situation, and he is talking to her, and she is deflecting him with religious excuses, racial excuses, all these different moral excuses, and Jesus keeps circling back, and he says, he says, but I have something for you, and that you're looking for this, and this is what you're really looking for. And we've seen people from all, you know, we've seen people from all walks of life come in and be healed by the grace of God. And so Jesus comes in. And why? Because he sees value in this woman's soul. The whole culture, the whole Hebrew, the whole Middle East culture had no value in a woman. And we've said this before. A woman could not even be a witness in a court case, even if she saw something. Um, Guess who the first woman was? I'm sorry. I just let it go. Who's the first person that saw Jesus resurrected? A woman, right? And Jesus is restoring the image to a woman, her value. And her, her loveliness in the eyes of God her, and her glory. This whole world has sexualized the female gender to a point where it's just so gross. And why? Because it, has, it, has, it removes the glory and the honor and the dignity of a woman to something else, to be, to be just a piece of trash. And that's not the way God looks at a woman. That's not the way God looks at a female gender. And it's very important for us to understand that because we are on an even place and there's no sins that are greater than anybody else's sin. And that's what Matthew 5 tells us. And so the woman says here, she goes, are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus said, everyone that drinks from this water is going to thirst in. He, he said to her, you keep coming back here because you're looking for something. And what you're looking for is what I can only give you. When that lesbian said to me, she goes, we are looking. I'm really looking. She goes, I'm looking for a God of love. Somebody could listen to that and say, well, we're not like that here. We're not going to excuse your lifestyle. We're not going to, you know, we understand the love of God, but that doesn't mean it. And, and that's not what she was saying. She was saying, I am desperately looking to be loved in my soul, and I can't find it in the, in the normal way in the world of, of, of sexuality between uh, heterosexual. And she said, I'm really looking for the love of God. And it dawned on me that, that the most decrepit, and we we again, here we are, Labeling and, and, and putting a cast of sins here. But the worst sin that you may think is the worst sin is actually the most hungry person for God. The hungriest person for God. And maybe this is not an issue here in Houston. I don't know. In Philadelphia, it was. There was a street there called South Street in, in Philadelphia. And you'd go there. You'd go there. And it was like, it was Sodom and Gomorrah 24-7. I mean, you, we would walk down there sometimes. And the restaurants were great, though. 
food was off the charts. But it was just, you go outside and it was just like, it was like Austin on steroids. It was just like, it was craziness, you know? It was like Montrose. It was unbelievable. And we were there and we just had some of the most amazing gospel conversations with people. It was incredible. And no churches were there. No churches were doing anything on that street because it was just, oh, that's the sinful place. And so God here, Jesus goes right for the bottom of the barrel, according to the eyes of a Jew, going to go to a woman in Samaria who's in the middle of the day, who's living in shame. She's living in her shame. And he goes right at her and he says, I have something for you. I have something that you're looking for. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, when a young man goes knocking on the door of a prostitute, he's actually looking for God's love. Does that make sense? When, and why do I say that? Because when we go into sin, when we go chasing after the world, when, when the woman at the well is, going, is, is on husband number five, what is she looking for? She's looking for the love of Jesus Christ. That's what she's looking for. She's not looking for the love of man. And she's working hard. This is, this is man number five. And, um, and, and, and every ladder demands, demands that you earn it. Right? You earn your career. You earn your status. I live in a neighborhood where there's an older generation of people there, and they live there because they earned it, right? I've earned this house. This is, I worked hard for this. This is, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm retired and I'm driving a Lamborghini. I don't, there's no Lamborghinis in my neighborhood, but, you know, they, these nice, you know, I've earned it. This is my, and, and I have the right to not have any trouble on this place. And that's a ladder. And that ladder can, you in your house, but you go into their house and it's, they're lonely. They're just, stuff's going on. There's stuff going on inside in their marriage. It's just a mess. Because you know what? That doesn't, that, that doesn't survive. And Jesus says, you know something? I'm here. I'm not judging you. I'm not, I'm not throwing Moses' law at you. And you're talking about temples. And he goes, he goes, I'm the temple. He goes, the hour is coming. And I'm getting ahead of myself here in my, in my message, but he said, she said, you know, you guys say in Jerusalem that we got to, we got to, we got to um, worship that temple, and here we have our own temple because we were excluded from the Jewish family. Got it? So we're, we got our own thing, and Jesus, and, and Jesus says, you're, you're making the issue of temples, okay? But the hour is coming, and now is, he says, that the Father seeks those to worship Him in spirit and truth. And he said, the hour now is. And the Greek word that he uses there for hour, and every time in the book of John, the word hour is used, it's referring to the cross, my hour, my hour of suffering, my hour of pain. And he says this, he goes, the hour is coming that I'm going to be the temple. And all the other temples don't mean anything. You can just forget the temples. I'm the temple. I'm the one that you're looking for. I'm the man that you're looking for. You're looking for these, you're looking for all of the, you're looking for me, but you're, you're looking at all these other men. And you're going to keep coming, and you're going, to, you're going to have man number six. You're going to have man number seven. I can't help but thinking when she's coming to the, to the well, Jesus sitting there by himself. Is she thinking, is this the next one? Is this the next guy? And so she says, sir, she says in verse 15, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is what the addict, this is what the addict is looking for. This is what, this is what, the teenager is looking for. This is what the middle-aged man is looking for. He's looking for this. Give me this water. And I think that it would be easy to say, okay, great. She's going to believe on Christ. It's going to be all good now. Everything's great. But Jesus takes a right-hand turn in the conversation. He says, first, 
go call your husband and come here in verse 16. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Hmm. Right? She's deflecting. She doesn't want to talk about this. Hey, this, we're getting too personal here. This is my personal life. And Jesus says, you are right in saying I have no husband. For verse 18, you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now, number six, is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then the woman said, the woman understands she's not going, she's not going to get away from this conversation. Don't you love how the gospel, by the way, the gospel doesn't come in and, and excuse and tolerate everything. Like that's a misunderstanding of the grace of God. It actually zooms right in and says, you know, what? we're going to get right to the core issue here in your life. And we're going to talk about why you keep coming to this, to this well. We're going to keep talking about why you have husband number six. And she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Again, she deflects. She's like, oh, hey, hey, you're a prophet. Wow, you're amazing. You know, you're a prophet. For you have said um, that I have no husband. And what you said is true. The fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem, she deflects into a conversation about religion. She goes, well, you're a prophet, but that doesn't really apply to me because I'm a bad person. You know, I'm, I'm, de- I'm dejected. I'm, and we do this. And we do this unconsciously. God begins to get deep. God begins to dig deep into our life and begins to discover stuff. And we are afraid. We're just like, we just run to our shame cave because we're afraid to be exposed because we don't know, is this Jesus, is this safe? Is this a safe zone? Can I, can I talk to him about my... My, my relationships, is this, is this a safe zone? And Jesus said, go call your husband. And she says, you're a prophet. Um, and then Jesus said, believe me, the hour is coming. And then he makes the, makes the issue here in verse 23 of what true worship is, and it's not a location. Je- Jesus begins to explain in verse 24 that God is a spirit, and those that worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. And then he gets to the third point, and so the second point, the first point is this, is that the grace of God is really for everybody. There's no, there's no, there's no levels or ca- there's no caste system of, of sins. Everyone, we have all, we're all sinners, and I'm just as bad as the worst sinner that you can even imagine. Second thing is that, the, that Jesus is patient, and the grace of God, the, the work of grace in your life is gradual. So don't get upset at yourself. If you think you've gone five steps and then you're taking 17 steps backwards. Don't get upset with yourself because God is beginning something and he's doing it. Because growth, this is important, growth is not mechanical. It's not a ladder that you climb and say, hey, if you get to that, this ladder, you can get over that barrier and you're good and you're accepted. Growth is something that has graduated. Paul Peter says at the end of his life, last thing he, one of the last things he says in the second, second book of Peter, he says, chapter 3, verse 18, he says, grow in grace. Because, guys, if I can tell you anything about being an impulsive uh, apostle, not always getting it, not understanding the whole thing. Always, I'm the guy that Jesus always rebuked, just, you know, publicly. Paul rebuked me publicly. I, I just needed a lot of this, and this is what I want you to understand. Chapter 3, verse 18, grow in grace. Just grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because when we grow in grace, we're going to understand who he is as our Lord. And the third thing is that Jesus here starts talking to her. And and she gets it. She goes, well, we know that the Messiah is coming. Jesus says, I am that Messiah. I'm the man that you seek. And just then, in verse 27, the disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, why do you, you know, what do you seek? Disciples knew better, right? They kind of knew the way Jesus, the way he functioned. Like, we're not going to ask him why he's doing this. There's a great reason. Jesus is being Jesus right now. And he's ministering to this woman. And meanwhile, the disciples come back and... The woman left her water jar. Verse 28. Look at those words. 
think of them for a minute. The woman left her water jar at the well and runs back to her town and says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. What an amazing scene. If I was a painter, I would paint this. You know, there's the jar on the well. On the well. Something that she was inseparable. I remember when, when, I remember when we got Caleb, um, you could not separate him from his milk bottle. It's like, that was one thing he just clung on to. That was the only thing he knew that was consistent in his life. And this woman left it. Why? Because she, she, she met the man that she was looking for. She didn't know she was looking for this man. You know, when someone came to us with the gospel and shared the gospel with us, something resonated, and we said, that's what I'm looking for, but we didn't even recognize it. It says in the Old Testament that I'm being sought by a people that didn't even know me. And, you know, Jesus walks in, and he says, here's the water. And the woman, and here, this, is the, this is the third point. Grace changes everything. This is true transformation. This can, because the law says change and you'll be happy, you'll be accepted. Grace says, I'm not demanding a change because that's already been fulfilled. And that doesn't work in our minds, in our, in our minds of justice. We want to be told to do something, especially as Americans. And I think even as Texans, because the story of Texas is just all these pioneers moving to here, leaving everything and just starting from, you know, starting from like nothing. And they had to defend their property literally with guns from from invading uh, parties of people, and everything was just by the sweat of their brow, and 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 we don't, and that doesn't, that just just that is in our DNA, and it's hard for us to understand that God is not demanding something from us; He has done it. And you know something about water, and I'm going to finish with this, is that to be thirsty, and I don't know how 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 thirsty have you ever been? Have you ever been so thirsty that you're just like, I don't know how thirsty you've been. The human body can be, can be without food for 30 days, right? Maybe, I guess, 40 days. I mean, I don't know. But we can only live how many days without water? No water at all. Three days. Water. We, we desire water more than anything on this planet. More than drugs, more than anything. We, if we don't have water by day two, we're just like, we're, we're a ravenous beast. And by day three, we're, 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 we're about ready to check out. And so when the water, when, so when a thirsty man meets water, he just can't take a sip, right? He just dives right into that. He wants to swim in it. He wants to drink as much as he can. And that's the way it is with the grace of God, that the grace of God is like sweet water. And when water comes to the lips of a thirsty man, it's so sweet and it's so beautiful. And there's nothing more tastier than water than to a thirsty man. And you know something? This woman dove right into the grace of God right into the grace of into the love of Christ. She dove right into God. And this is radical change. This is the change that we want. This is what we want. Because by the way, there's a moral part of you. I don't, I don't care how bad a person thinks they are or how far away from they are from God. There's a moral part of you that really is disgusted at, at your sin. It's not even like, that's your conscience. There's a part of you that is very moral and very dignified that just hates the fallen part of you. But it has nothing really to do with God. And that, that's not repentance. Being disgusted at something is not, that is not, full, full repentance is when God comes in, he gives us that water that we're seeking, we discover, you know what, I've been going to these, for, for her it was men, for somebody else it might be something else, I don't know. 
going to that well every day, every day in shame and dishonor. And she dives in, and she, her life is totally changed. And guess what happens? The sin, the addiction, the need is now, it's, she's disconnected from it, and she doesn't even realize it. And that's what God does in your life. The more we get to know about Jesus Christ, the more that we discover the Jesus of the New Testament, the more we discover him, the more water pots are just going to drop away. It's just, and it's like, it's not going to be like, hey, look at I, because you know what? Ancient, you know, in ancient history, what they would do is, you know, the stoicism of the Greco-Roman Empire. Hey, just willpower and reason and you're going to overcome your passions, right? Today is another, is another message is that, hey, just dig deep into your emotions, discover what you truly want and chase that down so that you can be your authentic self. But guess what? Neither of those can change the heart because the problem is the heart. The heart can be changed when we discover, you know what? I've been living with six men. And this is the man that I need. Or I've been living this crazy life. I've been chasing, I've been chasing adventure and excitement. And, and what I really truly need is a walk of faith, an exciting walk of faith with Jesus Christ. And you know something is funny, because there he is. Sometimes we stumble onto things in the in the plan of God and we don't even know it's what we're looking for. And then down the road it's like, well, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. I just want to close with this: is that the grace of God in your life is so powerful that it does not leave us the way it saves us. You know, the grace of God is powerful. It labors. Paul said this, it labors in me. Grace labors. And you know, it's like someone says, well, you grace people, you know, like you just say you can preach that. And then, you know, but guess what? If, it's, if you've met Jesus Christ, you are not the same person. I, I don't just, <laughs> the process is gradual, but you, you, you and I are not going to be the same people. I'm not the same person I was a year ago or two years ago, or 20 years ago, because Jesus Christ is meeting us at our wells in these shameful places in our life that we don't want to go to. And when we go to it, we don't want anybody there because <laughs> we're just, we feel like a moral outcast. We feel like we've been kicked out. And guess what? Jesus is there. And he's saying, you know what? I'm what you're looking for. Just dig deep into Christ. Open your Bible. Discover the wonders and the riches of Jesus Christ. And at the wells of in the wells of your despair, in the wells of our shame, Jesus is there, and there's no condemnation. And He says, "You know what? I am He. I am He." And He changes our life, and I love that. That's what I love about Jesus Christ. That's what I love. That's what I want our church to be about. I want it Christocentric. I want it to be about the gospel that's changing our life every day. And that's the message that I want us to communicate to people. When we talk to people. When we talk to people. I want that to be the message that you know something. Jesus is what you're looking for. Amen. So let's just pray. Father, I just thank you, God, that you're everything that we want or need.